Good morning and thank you uh, for the invitation through Daniel to be here this morning. And thank you also for your prayers. So uh, we're in Brisbane. I work at the University of Queensland. Um, and I really appreciate not just the fellowship of being with you this morning, but also the fact that um, through prayer to our sovereign and loving God, we can be part of this, of seeing the ministry go forth among university students uh, on the Sunshine Coast and uh, at the University of Queensland as well. Uh, I do find that working with university students makes me feel um, both old and young at the same time. I'm sure you can appreciate the uh, the cultural shifts that happen with young people. Uh, and of course, it's difficult to hide my receding hairline as well. And that's something which the students constantly remind me of, that I'm not as young as I used to be. Um, and so some things that happen over time, you think, oh, this is new. But other times you think, no, no, this is, this is the way it's always been, like in Ecclesiastes. In 2008, the world was plud- plunged into a global financial crisis. Investment banks failed, stock markets and national economies went into a tailspin. Ordinary people lost their lives, they lost their jobs, their superannuation and their livelihoods. But the crisis wasn't just financial. It caused even greater social issues as people were left homeless and jobless. It created tremendous strain on families, on marriages and livelihoods. One article I read reported that in the UK, prescriptions for antidepressants rose by 20% in the four years following. There was also a sharp rise in suicides. One British study suggested that the global financial crisis was responsible for at least 10,000 additional suicides in just the three years following. That was 2008. Now, it's been a few years, but what can be particularly disturbing for us is how few people have actually been held accountable. For what happened. In the US, only one banker has been convicted and sent to jail for issues relating to the global financial crisis. And even then, his sentence was just a little bit over two and a half years. The apparent success of the wicked is a real problem for those who believe that the world is ruled by a loving, Heavenly Father. Whether it's at the level of tax evasion by international corporations, the abuse and manipulation in the workplace or the schoolyard, the military or economic bullying by larger nations upon smaller nations, daily we are reminded of the struggle the people of God have, is that how are we to live in a world where all around us the wicked seem to prosper. A few years ago, Tim Minchin wrote the musical based on Roald Dahl's book, Matilda. It's a story of a five-year-old girl who, with the help of some special uh, telekinetic abilities, manages to take matters into her own hands uh, in order to right some injustices, both at home and at school. And so, with the help of a catchy tune... Matilda has managed to capture the 
this longing and this sense of injustice, which not just kids, but I think adults feel as well. Here are some of the words, Mitch, if you can put on the screen, from one of the songs which captures this sentiment. Just because you find that life's not fair, it doesn't mean that you have to grin and bear it. If you always take it on the chin and wear it, nothing will change. Even if you're little, you can do a lot. You mustn't let a little thing like little stop you. If you sit around and let them get on top, you might as well be saying, you think that it's okay, and that's not right. It's a catchy tune. And who doesn't love the story of an underdog triumphing over their their privileged, entitled oppressors? Even from childhood, we have this, this inner moral compass which says that some things are just not right. And yet this is where I think the advice of Matilda can lead us in an unhelpful direction. That is, in the light of the success of the wicked, sometimes we're tempted to be just a little bit naughty to take matters into our own hands, that the end somehow justifies the means. Now, small children obviously find this reasoning very attractive, whether it's in the schoolyard uh, or in fighting with their siblings in the bedroom. But adults know how uh, adults know how this kind of ethic just isn't livable in the real world, if you keep on taking matters into your own hands. Parents and teachers spend half their life trying to do behaviour management where kids are trying to execute justice on their own terms. Now, of course, Christians ought to be very concerned about justice. The Old Testament prophets frequently challenged Israel to live out both their love for God and their love for neighbour. It's there in their in their laws and commands, but it's also there in their calendar. The weekly Sabbath, the every seventh year Sabbath, or or the fiftieth year, the year of Jubilee. All the, these were reminders to Israel not just through their laws, but in their, in their calendar as well, that from the Lord comes times of rest, of renewal, and reset for everyone within Israel's uh, borders. Their servants, uh, the, the temporary um, residents, even their livestock. So the people of God ought to be particularly concerned about justice because they recognise that we have been recipients of God's kindness and mercy. But what do we do when the establishment of justice is beyond our reach? What commands does God give us then? What mindset ought to shape us? And, and what is the character and nature of God which empowers us to live this way now and into the future? So that's why this morning I want us to look at Psalm 37. There are different types of psalms. You know, the book of Psalms in the Bible is the largest book in the Bible, 150 chapters. Some of them are songs of praise. Some are prayers of lament, calling out to God for help or vindication. There are songs of thanksgiving. There are royal psalms which speak of the, of the, of the Lord's, uh, his king's rule over the nations. Or there are those which celebrate and savour the very word of God in his, um, and, and meditate on it. 
But Psalm 37 is not one of those. In fact, as we had it read to us, um, uh, uh, it sounded more like something... It sounded more like something out of the book of Proverbs, didn't it? Or, e- or even Ecclesiastes. This sort of psalm we might describe as a wisdom, wisdom psalm. A, a type of literature which helps the people of God in the world of, of confusion and complexity to make sense of how to live rightly. In terms of its form, this is an alphabetic acrostic. That is, it follows the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. That is, each letter, uh, each stanza starts with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, if you've got your Bible there, um, I, I hope that there's uh, a footnote, and I've highlighted it on the screen. This is, uh, this is a scan out of my Bible. I had to rub out some of the pencil marks so you weren't distracted by it. But uh, this is uh, from my, and you can see this is, uh, it says it uh, in the footnote there that tells you that this is an acrostic. Now these sort of, these sort of, uh, poems, these sort of songs, um, don't have that same narrative thread and progression that you would expect from some other Psalms or some other parts of the Bible. Instead, it just follows A to Z. The first letter in each, uh, in each stanza just starts with a successive letter of the alphabet. Now that doesn't sound like a very creative way of writing to us, but the very form itself can tell us something about, um, what its function is and, and what its message is. What it's saying is it's a bit like from A to Z, this covers all situations. We're not told of any specific circumstances in the life of David which gave rise to this psalm. And so I take it that because of that, uh, the Holy Spirit intends us to apply the message of this psalm quite generally, quite liberally uh, in all forms of life. And the first thing we're told us is don't fret, (laughs) trust God. And do good. So what I'm going to do is we're not going to go through every verse, but I just want to pick out some of the main themes throughout the psalm uh, and let that uh, and let us kind of chew on that this morning. Don't fret because of those who are evil or be envious of those who are wrong. Or down in verse seven, don't fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Don't fret. Now, some of us are more prone to this than others. Uh, some of us have a temperament that uh, makes us more susceptible to it. But the temptation being described here is, is to internalise this anxiety, to, to get all heated up, to be so overwhelmed by what you're seeing around you that it, it overcomes you. And we can be tempted to, to envy them and see, oh, they seem to be doing well, maybe if, if I could be like that. Or, or it so consumes us that we somehow wonder what's going on. Like, we doubt the goodness and sovereignty of God. Like, can't he see what I can see? And if he can see it, why doesn't he do something about it? But don't fret. Psalm 37 encourages us with an alternative. In verses 3 to 6. Trust in the Lord and do good. 
Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will do this. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. It's an invitation to us to persevere in faith and hope. It's not that we're unaffected by injustice or the prosperity of the wicked, but it has to do with understanding rightly our role, our limits, and the goodness of God. You see, to administer perfect justice, it requires perfect knowledge. We've been hearing a lot, actually, in the news about about the uh, the Queensland government DNA lab, something which we thought this was this told us the truth, but they don't know everything. To administer perfect justice requires perfect knowledge and perfect motives as well. And so, rather than doubting the wisdom and goodness of God, we're invited to trust to delight in him, to commit ourselves to him. Why should we do that? Well, it's because, as the psalm reminds us, there is a clear destiny. God actually tells us something of what his goal is. Even if we're not aware of his timing, we are aware of what his goal is. And that's the second thing we want to look at in this psalm. The destiny of the wicked is that they will fail. In verse 12, the wicked plot against their against the righteous and gnash their te- teeth at them. But the Lord laughs at the wicked. He knows their day is coming. Or verse 20. But the wicked will perish. Though the Lord's enemies are like the flowers of the field, they will be consumed. They will go up in smoke. <laughs> like, like a bushfire raging through the field, they will be consumed. That will be, it will be comprehensive. Whatever strength they think that they have now, it will all go up in smoke. And so God is not indifferent or powerless in the face of injustice. He's working his purposes out and he will will um, bring things to their right fulfilment. Some people think that the existence of evil in the world is evidence that there is no God. After all, so the argument goes, if there was a loving God, wouldn't he, wouldn't he intervene? Wouldn't he stop all this evil in the world in an instant? But we shouldn't mistake God's patience for his indifference or inactivity for impotence. Instead, the Bible repeatedly reminds us that God's future judgment is certain. And that God's future judgment is something that, far from being something to be ashamed of, a God of judgment, but actually something to take great comfort in. That all the world's wrongs and injustices, they will be made right. It's those who have experienced great injustice, I think, who probably find the most comfort in the doctrine of the judgment of God. But in the meantime, it calls for faith and perseverance. But we're not good at waiting, are we? Are we there yet? I think I heard that in the car trip yesterday. 
When can I watch TV? Waiting seems to take forever. In the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 6, we're given a picture of believers in heaven who had been killed for their faith, their witness to Jesus, and they are waiting. They are crying out to God for action. They say, how long before you will avenge our blood? And they're told just to wait a little longer. And the reason is curious. The reason is that God is still working his purposes out for his people. There is still yet more Christians in the world who are yet to suffer for their testimony to Jesus, thus glorifying Jesus, refining his people's faith and vindicating their trust in the Lord Jesus. So God's patience is not impotence. It's not indifference. It's not incompetence, but it's purposeful and it's calculated. The Lord Jesus prayed to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane that, that if there was any other way to take this cup of suffering from him, yet not my will but yours. The Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 3 uh, put it this way. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. There's no doubt about the certainty of God's judgment on the wicked. But judgment is not the only thing to say about God. Because he's not just busy now in, in, in gathering evidence against the wicked, but he's also busy in saving the wicked from judgment. Think of yourself. Are you a Christian? Do you remember the time when you first believed? When you acknowledged your sin and unworthiness before God and accepted and received Jesus on your behalf? Do you remember the, the joy, the relief of knowing sins forgiven? Of being energized and excited by the hope of heaven. Realising that the righteousness of God meant not just punishment of sin, but atonement for sin. I'd known ever since I was a child that expression, Jesus died for the sins of the world. But it wasn't until I was in my teens, when I was at university, that I went from knowing that Jesus died for the sins of the world to believing that actually Jesus died for my sins. What if Jesus had returned before that day? What if God, as he would have been completely entitled to do, had judged and punished my sin, my self-absorbed rebellion from him? What if, what if he had judged my sin before I had become a Christian. It's a tension that Christians face, actually. We, we long for the revealing of the righteousness of God. We cry, uh, as, as it says at the end of the book of Revelation, come Lord Jesus, come. We long for that day when Jesus will return, but, but we also know, as, as the Apostle Peter puts it, that his patience means salvation. 
Psalm 37 offers us comfort. Comfort that the wicked will fail, that they will not succeed despite their apparent success in the present. But as people ourselves who have been recipients of, of God's mercy and faithfulness, that God has not judged us as our sins deserve, that we're reminded also of God's goodness, that his sovereign purpose, that he has a plan, and that if there is a delay in judgment on the wicked, then he has good reason to do that. So we need not fret, as the psalm says. The wicked will fail, and all the time never failing to care for those uh, God never fails to care for those who are his people. God will bless his people. Listen to his listen to his fatherly care for his people in verse twenty three. The Lord makes firm the steps of the one who delights in him. Though he may stumble, he will not fall, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. Verse 17, for the power of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. Verse 28, for the Lord loves the just and will not forsake the faithful ones. That's the God that we serve, the God who saved us. When a child falls off their bike, trips down the stairs, is bullied at school, or is afflicted with sickness. The one thing that carries them through the pain and the agony is the care and comfort from those that love them. And isn't that true of the people of God? The Lord loves his people and will sustain them to the end. In fact, one of the promises that's mentioned in verse, mentioned throughout the psalm, it's mentioned seven times. Oh, that sounds significant. Seven times in the psalm is the promise that the righteous will inherit the land and dwell there forever. This notion of, of, of the land or a place where the people of God get to enjoy the rule of God. We may be sojourners, temporary residents, travellers. We may be exiles. But as people of the kingdom of God, we long for that day when we will dwell in the place of God, the land, forever. Just put yourself in the shoes of the people who would have been reading this psalm in the Old Testament. Imagine the average Israelite who's been evicted from their land. They're now in exile in Babylon in the, in the 6th century BC. Their political, military and theological experience has been one of, of abandonment and being conquered. Your home has been invaded, your city has been destroyed, the temple and all that, all that you've taken pride in And confidence in has been ransacked. The temple, its gold furnishings have all been looted. The the descendant of David who sat on the throne, where is he? In those days, Babylon is bigger, is stronger, is more powerful. They are the dominant superpower, the bully in the 6th century BC. And they appear to be unstoppable. They can do whatever they like and they are a law unto themselves. If that's you, 
living in a time like that, how do you react to Psalm 37? Psalm 37, which says, do not fret because of those who are evil or be envious of those who do wrong. Aren't you tempted to say, oh, that sounds great. I mean, that that sounds great for people in David's day, but they don't know what it's like for us. The temptation to think that is so strong. This is a psalm not just for us, thinking about our uh, geopolitical circumstances or the workplace uh, bullying that goes on, but for the Christians in Afghanistan, in North Korea, in parts of China, do not fret. What is distinctive in this psalm, though, is not just this general command that we should somehow trust God, but he gives us a specific promise. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. For the people of God in exile in Babylon, that is a promise really with little basis within their daily experience. They have no sense of how that could possibly happen. But there are some who believe it. You have Ezekiel, you have Jeremiah as well saying, no, look, the Lord said 70 years. And so, and so what sustained them is not what they see around them, but actually what they read in the scriptures. This is how God speaks to us. This is how God comforts his people is through his word. For the people in Babylon, they've received these words and they need to treasure them. Seventy years later, God did use the Persian Empire to release the captives. Some of them returned home. But when we get to the New Testament, it continues this theme. The New Testament continues to point us to a land beyond just the land of Canaan, to another land, a land where the people of God will dwell forever without the presence of your sin or mine, a land where righteousness dwells. This is the this is the promise that continues to reverberate throughout the New Testament. The book of Hebrews talks about it. It's, it says kind of picking up on Psalm 95, but the idea is the same, that, that there still remains a rest for the people of God. They didn't experience that full sense of, of rest as the people of God when, when Joshua led them into the land of Canaan. No, th- that wasn't the end of it. When God makes a promise, he makes big promises. If God promises a land for his people, it's not going to be, it seems to be not fulfilled just in the land of Canaan, but actually in a new creation. Hence the book of Hebrews' exhortation to us not to harden our hearts through unbelief as that former generation did. We have so much to give thanks to God for here in Australia. But as comfortable as life is, this is not the new creation. This is not the land that God had promised. We still wait for the new creation, a land where sin and death will be defeated, where the wicked will be held to account, and the people of God enjoy a permanent home with our Lord. So when we read passages like Psalm 37... Old Testament passages. We read it not just as a psalm of David 
or even as uh, as a psalm that the exiles in Babylon would have would have read and meditated on. But it finds its fulfilment in the person and work of Jesus. When Jesus spoke of his kingdom and the blessings for those who would trust in him, he said these words in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Righteousness is not found in us being, as as Matilda says, being a little bit naughty to somehow get justice the way we see it. But we need a God, ultimately, who will judge the world in love, in righteousness, and one who promises to bring blessing to those who will trust him. And so the last word of comfort for us in this psalm is one of certainty. The psalmist is not unaware that the faithful do suffer in the world. This is what he says in verse 23. The Lord makes firm the steps of the one who delights in him. Though he may stumble, he will not fall, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. In the real world, we do stumble. We stumble perhaps by our own sin, but we also suffer, and we suffer unjustly. In fact, he goes on in verse 25 to say what sounds like a proverb to share with us the wisdom of experience and hindsight. He says, when I was young, now I am old, yet I have never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. It's not that he's unaware of life in the real world, but he's no, for the people who put their trust in God, they will may stumble, but they will never fall. Whether the injustice around us is economic or military, whether it's domestic or social, the struggle for us is to know how to live in a world now with the apparent success of the wicked. And a a passage like this, Psalm 37, says we don't have to be a little bit naughty to seek justice. But instead, the people of God are encouraged not to fret, not to be consumed within us, but to trust God, to do good. The wicked will fail, but God will bless his people. And it might be that some of the wicked are brought to know and love him. He's done that with the Apostle Paul. And he's done that with you and me. When I was a student, we would, uh, each year, we would run a campus-wide evangelistic mission on campus. We would try to invite anyone, we'd hand out flyers, come and hear some talks about Jesus and about the Bible and uh, about uh, uh, Christianity. Uh, myself and a couple of our friends, there was uh, so one of our friends who was a very vocal atheist. Uh, but he kind of, he humoured us and he would frequently uh, accept our invitations to come along to our, uh, our mission events, our evangelistic talks. One time he wrote on one of the feedback 
forms. In fact, uh, the little A6 bit of paper was just not enough for him, so he stapled an A4 piece of paper to it, and it, it was just full of his rant, saying, "This is this is the worst example of biblical Christianity that I've ever heard. I can't believe it." Blah 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 blah. I mean, this is, some, this is the closest thing I've ever come to with someone who thinks, oh, he is so far away from the faith. He was never going to become a Christian. A few years later, after I'd graduated, I was in Gladstone, like many engineers often find themselves in Gladstone at some point in their life. Uh, I was in Gladstone and uh, walking along the beach at Tannum Sands there, and, and I bumped into him. And you know how when you kind of meet someone and it's out of context, it takes you a moment to kind of remember their name and stuff. Oh. Anyway, and as we got talking, he was talking about, oh, he'd got married, you know, that um, it's not unusual. Uh, but he was talking about... Um, uh, how involved he was at his church, and he was in, uh, you know, you know, leading kids' church and everything. And I was just so thrown by it. I thought, what, you know, so, oh, so, so you're a Christian? And he was like, oh yeah. And then just kept talking about his church and things that he was doing. <laughs> I just found it so convicting that here is someone that I had completely written off as someone incapable of understanding and believing and submitting to the gospel of Jesus. But God in his timing will do that. God will hold the wicked to account. But in his mercy, he may actually even call us to faith. What a wonderful, loving, heavenly father that we serve. Let's pray. Our father in heaven, we confess that we don't know all and we don't see all. And yet we feel the pain of our own uh, suffering at the hands of injustice or, or, or the injustice of others. Father, we do pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. But we also thank you that in your sovereignty and mercy that you are not just judging the world but saving it. Father, please do bring many into your kingdom here and across the world for Jesus' sake. Amen.